Hi everyone, I'm Sofia, the founder of Vona and a host of this podcast, Vona Talks. Vona is a consultancy and education platform with a focus on climate, gender, security and intersection between them. In this podcast, we bring unique and underrepresented as well as more known voices of diverse experts, activists and storytellers. Hi everyone, this is Sofia and we are back with Wanna Talks and today the guest that I have with me is Cass Hebron who often talks about climate action and she's an editor of The Green Fix and a climate communication consultant who worked with Friends of Europe, Oxfam and a number of other organizations. Hi Cass. Hi. Could you also introduce yourself? Sure. So, I mean, you gave me a good introduction, but... Um... To expand a little bit, I am a consultant that works with environmental advocacy NGOs, uh, mainly those based in Brussels or campaigning at the EU level. And I work with them on the communications for their different campaigns. Uh, so, for example, at the moment, I'm working with Friends of the Earth Europe on their Justice is Everybody's Business campaign and the Beyond Growth Coalition Uh, I also run the Green Fix, as you mentioned, which is a climate justice newsletter uh, rounding up opportunities and news for anyone that wants to get more involved in climate movements but doesn't know where to start. Nice, nice. I am particularly interested to learn more about the Green Fix, but we will talk about this later. So before we dive into the content of your work, I want to hear about your story. Where do you come from? What brought you to work on climate? Anything that you can share with us? Sure. When someone asks me my story, I'm always tempted to go, oh, it all began in 1997. But no, I will get to the point. So I've been interested in climate action and sustainability, you know, like anyone that is in favor of the survival of the planet for about... Eight years, I, I think I first became conscious of the issues when I was a university student. I was studying in London. And London is not a student-friendly city if you're not um, a rich kid. So I was always trying to stay on a budget. I was uh, obsessively saving money and I got really into secondhand shopping because it saved me money. And there is a lot of secondhand shops in London. So it became my hobby, um, particularly for clothes and the more I did it the more I started reading about the uh, other benefits of secondhand shopping of reducing global waste or um, global consumption and not buying things that have not very transparent supply chains and you don't know who made your clothes and I started to think oh I wonder if there's un other ways that I can be more sustainable and ethical uh, without breaking the bank in the process because I was still super broke <laughs> so I was looking for information online but I didn't really find anything it was all about you know buying the most ethically made shawl imported from Nepal to be ensured um, that what you were buying was made fairly which I didn't have the money for that um, so I started a little student magazine in New York where I was studying all about ways to be sustainable without spending money And this started off as just a little passion project or just a little interest thing. And the more I did it, the more I got very invested in it. And in the end, I was spending as much time on this magazine as I was on my actual degree. 
um, because I was interviewing green groups, uh, student groups, local politicians, local businesses, all about different areas of sustainability. So I was learning more and more. And there becomes a point where you read so much about uh, the issues facing the world at large in terms of ecological and social crises, the extent of things like food waste, fashion waste, um, animal agriculture and its impact on carbon emissions. And you can't uh, stay detached anymore. I stopped caring so much about just saving money and started caring about the environmental issues that I was reading about. Um, so I became very invested in this magazine and I had a team of, of students helping me. And then when it came time for graduation, like everyone else uh, that is studying, I was preparing to move back in with my family and prepare for unemployment. And I really believed there was no jobs out there because that was what we were told. Thank you, UK education system. Um, and it didn't really occur to me that I could just continue doing what I was already doing. I was like, oh, I wish there was a way that I could have a job writing about the climate. Unfortunately, NGOs in London are too competitive. Da, da, da. Um, so, you know, for being a university student, I was quite slow. Um, and eventually I applied for a lot of NGO media internships and I applied for one in Belgium, kind of in the middle of the night. You know, one of those things that you just do like when you can't sleep and then you forget about. Um, anyway, that's the job that I ended up getting. So I was confronted with the reality of applying for a job in Brussels is that you might then actually get the job in Brussels. And that was for the Fair Trade Advocacy Office, um, who, if anyone doesn't know, they advocate for um, more transparent supply chains and more sustainable trade, uh, particularly with countries in Latin America, and on paying farmers a fair wage. So I was their media intern for six months, and that was the deep dive into not just individual sustainability, because before I'd been very concerned with, you know, being plastic free and zero waste, and more into political change and political advocacy. I had no idea, no idea what I was getting into. I showed up in Brussels and my boss, an amazing guy, um, said, oh yes, we're going to organize an event at the parliament. And I was like, I just came from York from writing about plastic waste and now... I'm supposed to help with an event in the European Parliament. I don't know who anyone is. What does this mean? Uh, so I was really thrown in the deep end. And after six months of that, uh, my perspective had again changed. And I wanted to keep campaigning at the political level and focus less on individual sustainability. So to cut a very long story short, one thing led to another. And I worked after that internship for another NGO uh, for Oxfam. And then I became a freelancer two years ago, uh, doing more or less what I was already doing, communications for NGOs. And here I am. Nice. I love that story. And I love how our personal actions lead to our kind of professional choices. And uh, if you believe in some sort of destiny and all of this, it brought you to where you are today. Um, and congratulations on freelancing for two years. I think my freelancing is also almost two years. Um, but for me, it wasn't a choice. But I hear for you, you kind of wanted it to to do it this way. Um, could you share with me the idea of the Green Fix? Did it come the same time when you started freelancing around COVID times? Or 
where does that come from? Because it kind of is about going back to individual level, right? And connected maybe political and individual, but at least from what I see and how I see it. Yeah, the idea is sort of to bridge this gap between individual and systemic change. And I started it nearly three years ago, which um, seems like a very long time now I say it out loud. I didn't expect it to take over my life. But I started it during lockdown. I was a media trainee for Oxfam then. Uh, that's what I went on to do after the Fair Trade Advocacy Office. And I was in part of a lot of internal email chains. A very exciting part of the working world is all the email chains you get added to. Um, and they were sharing a lot of really interesting articles, resources, online courses to learn about, you know, human rights or um, what does development really mean and things like that. And um, at the same time, I was working on communications around quite major changes at the EU, particularly around the EU Green Deal and the recovery package. This was in um, the end of 2019 to the start of 2020. Um, and there was a lot in the news right then about the Amazon rainforest uh, fires being the worst that they had ever been in I don't know how long. And my friends and family who did not work for NGOs uh, were feeling very powerless and they would, you know, call me and say how depressing it is to see this news and how they try their best. You know, that's what people say. They're like, you know, I try to do all I can and recycle and, you know, not shop at the terrible corporations, but it just feels like what's the point when the scale of global disasters is so great or the challenge is so great and I wished that there was a way that they could know about what was happening at a political level because I think part of the powerlessness came from not even understanding what is going on governments do not make it easy for us to know what is happening at a political level because the easier it is to understand the easier it is to influence and it's all very well setting up systems to allow citizens to take part in open consultations and sign petitions and contact their local policymaker. But if you don't know how the decision-making process goes, you don't know who to go to for what, and you don't know how to even access the open consultations online, and why would you? Because the EU makes it super confusing then you're not going to do that and you're not going to even be aware that that option exists. And you're also not going to hear about all these opportunities that are being shared internally. There is so much that individuals can do beyond recycling and little actions at home. It is good, you know, to try to use less plastic and to shop secondhand. But that's not the extent of our power we have so much power to actually directly influence political change and to change that political structure itself not just about being part of the decision-making process but changing the way that we make decisions so i got very frustrated about this gap in knowledge and this gap in accessibility and i had nothing better to do because i was just sat behind my laptop all day because we were in lockdown so i started writing this little newsletter to share some of the news but like with explainers I was like okay 
here's what's happening in the Green Deal and here's what that actually means. What is the Green Deal? Blah, blah, blah. And doing little interviews with people in the climate movement and also sharing some of these opportunities that I was receiving. And I just did this without really having a plan. It's how I do most things. And um, it grew. I got really invested in it. This is a pattern with me. And more and more people started subscribing. At least I was doing it just for me and my friends, but then more people started reading it. So uh, I kept doing it. And now it's been three years and we have quite a large audience, definitely larger than I was anticipating when I started. And uh, now I have a team of seven people that help me do this newsletter and we do some events as well. And the goal has changed, not just from explaining what is happening and how people can get involved, but also to creating a point of connection. What I mean by that is that the climate movement is extremely polarized and divided. We work very much in our silos. Silos is one of the EU's favorite words. And we don't connect so much. We we, we don't collaborate based on quite technical differences in opinion and fail to see or fail to take take advantage of the fact that our power comes from collaborating across differences. And that if we want to remove our current political structure and economic structure because it does not suit everyone, we cannot hope to replace that with another one-size-fits-all structure. But rather we need to work across our diverse opinions and perspectives and create a common ground. But instead, we sit at home and we doom scroll on Twitter or X, the most supervillain name for a social media platform anyone has ever come up with. And then we think that we're the only ones that really care. So the Green Fix also became a way to say, look, we have more in common than not, and we should talk to each other more. So we started doing events a couple of years ago, maybe one year ago. What is time? Recently. Um around this you know you don't need to work for a particular NGO have particular experience you just need to care because as long as we are still working together and talking to each other we get the energy from those connections and also the opportunities and the new ideas from those connections so it has changed over time but that's where it all came about me on a sofa bored in lockdown Nice. I think that's how the best projects are being made, I feel like. So I'm sure soon we will hear more about the green fix and about you and where you went. And then it will be even more impressive story starting from the couch, finishing somewhere. I don't know where. Um, but I want to hear more about those topics that you discussed, because I completely agree with you. And I feel like the idea of my small project and the podcast also came from like connecting people to this huge amazing global ideas that are discussed in European Parliament or EU institutions or national governments and connecting them to real people on the ground who are the ones who get affected the most by these policies and who probably are super confused about all those words about green deal and recovery packages and I'm not even going into smaller details Um, so maybe we can talk about what are the current issues that are on the discussion that you share in the green fix, maybe, or that bother you the most or hurt you the most, um, that you focus, talk about, advocate for you and your friends and colleagues. Wow, where do I even begin? I care about so many topics. 
I think there are two themes that we try to pull out in the green fix. And one of them is what you're saying just now, that the people that are most affected by the climate crisis are those that are often the least represented in uh, decision-making places, in politics, and those that are given the least opportunity to fight the impacts of the climate crisis. Um, I'm talking about the global majority, you know, people based in global south and the countries most affected, but also whole groups in society. I mean, a political structure that's mainly composed by and for rich white men in the global north was never going to represent or defend the interests of people around the world. Um, and yet we keep on using it because we're also not in the room to change that. So I try and highlight in the Green Fix um, the experiences and the knowledge and the solutions that come from the global majority. For example, this year we decided to focus on interviewing women rather than men, um, purely because we know that there are both women and men and people of all genders that have expertise on all areas of the climate, but it will be harder for women to be heard because they have had a lot less time historically to share their experience and their opportunities. And they also find it harder uh, to get the microphone, get the platform. So just by changing that and putting the search for women uh, experts first um, helps rebalance. And the same with people from all other underrepresented backgrounds so anyone that isn't a non uh anyone that isn't yeah a rich white man from the global north who not to exclude them from part of the discussion but rather it should be proportional that uh, we are in the minority in in northern europe we shouldn't be speaking for everyone people can speak for themselves so that's one topic that we try to address. And another one is to highlight that the many ecological and social issues that we face are connected, that at the moment, it's not always transparent or obvious that social injustices, discrimination, poverty, inequality, biodiversity loss, uh, carbon emissions, and also physical and mental health um, epidemics are all coming from the same root causes. They're not separate topics. We don't have, by sheer coincidence, um, a biodiversity, uh, an ecosystem in collapse, and lots of people suffering from uh, mental health problems when we are all living in the same economic structure that demands that we exhaust the planet's resources. You know, the neo-capitalist uh, economy does demand that we constantly overproduce and overconsume so that our GDP can keep growing and so that we can keep on generating more interest for shareholders. But that relies on the myth of exponential growth, on the idea that we can produce more and more each year and that GDP growth is an indicator of economic well-being. 
However, in doing so, we not only triggered the collapse of the ecosystem through exhausting natural resources, exploiting and mining around the world, we also deepen inequalities because a lot of those materials come from the global south, come from communities that are not able to defend their lands because they've got European and North American companies coming in and extracting from them, which just serves to maintain these uh, historical inequalities and perpetuate neocolonialist patterns. And on top of that, the same system that demands that we exhaust the planet's resources and demands that we um, pay the workers as little as possible to extract these resources so that we can generate as much profit as possible for the corporates, uh, for the corporations, also requires that their employees are working overtime, that we have this glorification of productivity for the sake of productivity, for the sake of producing things that really we don't need. And we know that this obsession with productivity has seeped not just through our economic structure, but also into our minds, particularly here in the individualist Western culture, where we are obsessed with the idea of making it and making it through working harder. But we're in a rigged system. It doesn't matter how hard you work. A lot of your success or the stability that we seek is locked away. Because if we can obtain that financial sense of stability and happiness, then what would be the incentive to keep on working hard and keep on generating production and profit for the shareholders? We need to be uh, continually overproducing, but also overconsuming. It does not suit a capitalist economy for us to feel like we have enough and to be working together and to borrow and share things rather than buy them, because then who will generate the profit? So we're locked into needing to feel unhappy and dissatisfied and blaming ourselves for not working enough to earn more money, to buy more things that might be the key to happiness. And then we wonder why there are skyrocketing levels of depression, stress, anxiety across the West, also across the world. But we have this um, crossover with individualism here in the West. And these issues are all connected. They do all come from the same structures, but we don't necessarily see them as connected and the patterns aren't clear because it's a huge, it's not one issue. It's chaos and in the green fix somehow in a little bit and try and draw these things together and say how can we be happy if we're going to keep on raising forests to the ground to produce things that you don't really need or want and that there are alternatives and that the alternatives already exist so those are the two main issues the climate justice and rebalancing historical injustices and drawing connections between the economic structure and the many issues that we're facing right now. Nice. I love how I didn't really ask you about providing a gender perspective because the, the podcast is on climate, gender and security, interconnection and intersection. But you still brought the gender one because it is an important one. And um, I mean, it's also a bit more global, that climate justice is not only about gender, but it's about all the minorities and all the underrepresented groups. 
And um, about the second topic or kind of the second narrative that you tried to bring, um, I mean, for me, it was also something that I have figured out myself on very recently on how everything connects to the system and how much it's all like kind of the root cause is sort of more or less the same for many, many problems that the world faces today. And um, but I would want to ask you for solutions for tips for anything you can give because it all sounded quite and I mean I'm speaking for myself but I heard the information so I kind of was prepared for what you're going to talk about but then I guess not everyone was um what uh listener who is not in EU politics not in the NGO not in the in the place of power to put it like this can do already today tomorrow does it mean they have to stop buying the coffee cups or start going to secondhand shops or do those things not matter whatsoever because I feel like the debates on these topics are also still ongoing and um, as a citizen as well because we have a lot of elections coming in and I feel like those things also do matter in the way how you can affect or influence something so what would be your few solutions tips to how an average citizen can contribute to some of the problem situations that you described? Sure, that's a, that's an interesting question. I realized my last uh, uh, answer was quite intense. And if you are not working in that, it can be uh, a lot. And I definitely don't want to make people think that there is no solution, even though the challenge facing us or the system we're in is extremely hard to unpin. But it's also hard to unpin because we're not even aware of it. So why will you change something when you don't understand it or you're not aware of it? Um, I think there's several things that we can do as an individual. The first one is um, addressing our pre-existing beliefs because I work a lot with um, or I discuss a lot with readers of The Green Fix, but also young activists and people generally uh, wanting to make a difference. And they tend to say, the same things um they often say oh you know um the system is too big to to be changed it's it's too entrenched it is too difficult to or it won't change fast enough uh, i think that this is possibly the greatest trick that capitalism and the current political structures have played on us is the belief that they are somehow immovable or that the system is so entrenched that it can't be unmained. But systems do not exist outside of people. If people vanished tomorrow, there wouldn't be a political system in place. It is purely composed of individuals. And we create this false binary between individual people and political systems as if they're not two halves of a whole. Every system is just a collection of individuals and every climate movement is just a, a collection of individuals. And the other thing that people say is that um, they do what they can on an individual level. It's a bit what I was saying earlier, but it feels like it's not enough against the, the scale of the crises. And again, I think this is a false binary um, for two reasons. Firstly, Doing things that are sustainable on an everyday level are not on their own enough to transition away from the current political economic system into one that isn't actively raising the planet to the ground. However, there are other benefits to doing them. I don't shop secondhand and uh, 
eat plant-based because I think that that on its own will dismantle the animal agriculture industry and the fast fashion industry. I do them because they make me happy and because they get me talking to people and they start conversations and they get me to try new things. You know, when I started shopping secondhand, I was able to choose clothes that actually made me feel like an individual, not just what Zara or Primark want me to look like. And I started sharing because it got me talking to my neighbors. It got me outside and it got me talking to people I would never normally speak to and feeling like part of an actual community, this very overused word. But I actually felt like I wasn't just an individual trying to make it in competition with everyone else. So these individual actions are not really about whether or not they reverse planetary tipping points but we do them because they have other benefits the other thing is that there isn't this binary between individual and systemic action but the guilt of not being a perfectly sustainable activist at home prevents a lot of people um it's very easy to fixate on the fact that you're not you know doing enough or, or doing the right things that for whatever reason it's not accessible to you to go without a car or um, to go vegan and people spend a lot of time explaining to me how guilty they feel about these things this again is a great trick that has been played on us because if we are too busy feeling guilty and punishing ourselves for not being perfectly vegan or flight free or whatever then what energy do you have left to actually email your politicians aviation companies and ask them what are they doing how are they preparing for the just transition? We need to fixate on the people that are contributing the most to the climate crisis, whilst also doing what we can to live according to our values, but without it being some huge task, some huge perfectionist effort. Perfection is what is going to prevent us from progress. And so we need to shift away from this intense guilt because nobody needs you to be a perfect activist. There is no such thing. No movement has been led by a perfect activist, but a lot of them have succeeded anyway. Um, in terms of concrete actions that you can take, there are several things that have a lot of impact that anyone can do, even if you're not an expert. Uh, I would say the first one is to identify who is your local decision maker, who are your local politicians? How do you contact them? What do they already believe and vote for? And what are the upcoming elections? And there is no election too small, right? Your local town council, your local university student council, care about those elections, get involved in those, because those are just microcosms of the political system that we have across the EU. And it, it doesn't trickle down, it trickles up, right? the impact that those decisions have. And just showing that you care makes people think differently. You know, I remember in the last UK elections, some people were saying, oh, I'm not going to vote out of protest. But you saying nothing because you are disenfranchised from the current system is an understandable response, but it's also completely ineffective. Nobody notices you rejecting the current system by doing nothing. In fact, that enables it. So even though the democratic systems that we have in the EU are not really that democratic or that fair or that well-managed. 
they're what we have now. So we have to participate in them whilst knowing that we're aiming for something that works. Um, I would also say to focus on solutions that don't treat ecological issues in silos. So what do I mean by this? I mean, look beyond the greenwashing. Companies and governments are trying extremely hard to make us think that they're doing a lot by telling us that they're going to go net zero by 2150. You know, it could also be net zero on alcohol consumption by 2050. It doesn't mean anything. But ask them, what are they concretely doing? And what are they doing to make sure that that transition is also fair and not repl replicating existing inequalities? And these issues can look different for every region, every community. It could be about what are they doing with the new housing at the end of your street um, or how are they making sure that the new housing is going to uh, not drive up rent for existing people in the area. Um, it could be about asking why is it so hard to get to a green space in my city. Um, it really looks different depending what issues you care about and what are affecting your local area. And even uh, more accessible or even easier on an everyday level, I would say we have to make a conscious effort to be exposed to information and to uh, voices that we don't normally hear. It have to make an active effort to seek out activists and experts and authors uh, from backgrounds that are different from us because it changes our way of thinking. It makes us realize that there are other ways to live and to do things. Um, so I really recommend just spending time finding podcasts, articles, books um, from people from different countries, different backgrounds, different religions, everything, um, because we need to be able to think in a diverse way for a diverse world. And we will not get that from mainstream media. And to ask, where is the representation when it's lacking? In your workplace, in your school, ask, why do we all look the same here and think the same? It's all very well posting things about climate action on social media and seeing that you have a lot of likes, but they're all from your friends and they're all from people that already agree with you. That is not how we have effective conversations. So I'd say, listen, but also talk to people. Say, look, I care about the climate and this is why I'm trying to reduce my waste at home. This is why I'm getting involved in local elections because this always feels to me like a really weird piece of advice to give, but I don't think that people are actually doing that. Instead, they are coming to me and to other activists and they're saying, the thing is, nobody cares. Nobody in my family or my workplace really thinks about these things and it's very draining. And it is draining, but they're also never going to start thinking about it just because they see a headline that says there's a new IPCC report. That is not what spurs people into action. Most people start caring because someone they care about is talking about it. We don't necessarily care about science, sorry, um, or about global statistics or how this is affecting people on the other side of the world, because psychologically it's very difficult to connect that to what you're doing on an everyday basis. But we do care about the people around us. So you do have an impact just by saying this is something I care about. You don't need to be an influencer. If you talk to two people, you have tripled your impact because now three people could sign that petition rather than just you. So just talk about it a bit more. There's also some very concrete um, movements that I want to um, draw attention to because I think they present actual alternatives. 
Um, as I'm saying all of these things, but if people ask you, okay, what should we do instead? You also need to have an answer. Um, one of the areas that I work in is degrowth and moving beyond um, this GDP obsessed economy into a well-being economy. So an economy that is based on indicators of planetary well-being, access to basic services, um, uh, reduction in poverty, and uh, fairer distribution of wealth and resources to not have it hoarded by the one percent uh, and they also have very concrete uh, examples of how this can work and we also have small businesses that are actively embracing alternative economic systems so i'd say drawing attention to those and uh, sharing those stories wherever you find them uh, is a good way forward and on top of that, supporting climate movements that are local to you, uh, as well as getting involved online and actually sharing those. It feels like nothing, but it does make a difference. It's far better than not sharing it at all. Um, and being aware that there are solutions and the solutions will look different in every region. I had another point and I've forgotten it and I'm just saying words. Oh, yeah. Um, also become very aware of what is a real green claim and what isn't. Uh, offsetting is a very risky path to go down. If a company tells you that they're offsetting, I would ask them more questions about how do they measure that. Uh, just because a package is green doesn't mean that it's actually green. Uh, there is no legal grounds to call something sustainable. There's no minimum criteria. Um, so become savvy about what is actual uh, climate action, um, what isn't. And there's a lot of guides online for that. Um, it's just a case of taking the time to do the research. So I've named a few things there um, that I hope were what you were going for. I could go on, but I'll, I'll pause. No, I, I do agree with you as well with the fact that there are a lot of already things that we can do on our daily basis within the communities where we live and just getting a bit more curious and going there and explore. It already will be an amazing first step to, to go for. I haven't been a climate activist and because I actually come from security and international relations and a bit from the bubble that we were talking about. And I remember my first climate movement. I came there because my friend went and she was like, do you want to join? And first I was also a bit like, what would I do there? It's usually this like hipsters, young people going and protesting against climate and doesn't give anything. I already do enough work in research and like in policymaking and so on. But I was very much surprised like how many people I met and it was the conversations that I had there. So I didn't even go just to protest and really show my point of view, but more learning from others and seeing why others do this and talking to real people in a way and actually asking why do they do this? What do they do? And I feel like this is also like one of the ways to go and talk to other people from outside of your bubble. So for me, after that, the protest began this like type of environment where you can come and just engage with people who are not usually in your surroundings otherwise. So thank you very much, Cass. We're coming to an end of this episode. And I wanted to ask if you have any last sentence you want to share with the listeners. Anything you want to, I mean, besides, of course, everyone should subscribe to The Green Fix and so on. And now follow you everywhere. But beyond that, if you have any, any last sentence of hope, hopefully. <laughs> Any last sentence of hope? I think what I would like to get across is that 
It can be extremely daunting to join the climate movement, both in terms of the scale of the crises and also in knowing where to start. But whatever you do, you're not doing it alone. You know, you don't have to know exactly what the best thing to do is or what you can best contribute. Just start anywhere. And the amazing thing is that there is something for everyone. You know, every person can be part of the climate movement in a way that suits them. It's okay if you don't want to be on the streets with a megaphone, but every NGO, every climate uh, every climate group needs a graphic designer. They need a social media person. They need people handing out water at the side of protests, you know. They need everyone. Every climate activist needs a plumber. Every plumber can be a climate activist. And you can find a place for you and it might take a bit of trial and error, but it is so much fun. Like that sounds so cheesy and it is. It is so much better to try than to be paralyzed and not do it at all. So start anywhere. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That was it for this episode. Now we would love to hear from you. Let us know who should be our next guest. Maybe it's you? To get engaged, go to our website, buona.international, where you will find a box to share with us your ideas and requests regarding next episodes. Also, subscribe to our monthly newsletter and follow us on social media. Talk soon! Talk soon!